Heavenly Father, you are the searcher of our hearts. We ask today that you would give to us a larger spiritual vision, that we may see ourselves with faultless eyes so that we may resist every sin, and that you would grant to us a spiritual consciousness so sensitive that we shall know that you are with us in all of our daily occurrences and in our walk, especially when we are harassed and burdened by the tempter. And may your Holy Spirit, O Lord, help us that we may keep untarnished the hope of the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this morning. I thank you for each person here. We thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery. And we do thank you for those who ministered to them this week. And we pray, Lord, that all of us would grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ today, that we would be challenged and exhorted where we need challenging and exhortation, that we would be comforted where we need comfort, and, Lord, that we would be at great peace because you are the sovereign God. I thank you this morning for your word in our own language, and I thank you that you have sustained and superintended the care of your word throughout the generations, and that it has come to us in our own heart language. And Lord, I thank you for your people gathered here in this expression of the body of Christ. Thank you for this community and for uh, each circle or arena of influence each one of us has. And Lord, may we be sensitive and have our eyes opened and our ears open to those around us who may need to hear the promise and the peace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage this morning. I pray that you give my lips the right words and that uh, we would all grow in Christ because of this encounter with this portion of your word to us. We thank you for our country, for the freedom we enjoy meeting here, and we do pray for our president, others in leadership, and Lord, uh, we know it's a very tumultuous time, and we pray as believers that we would not get drawn into debates in unnecessary anger, but Lord, that we would uh, be standing firm for the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for our missionaries around the world, for those who are in Bible translation, those in church planting, and otherwise, Lord, we know that you know where they're at, and we know that you love them and care for them each day, too. We praise you now and ask that we would uh, have hearts turned towards you, that we would be engaged with this message here today, and that because of that, you would be honored and glorified, for that is why we are here, to honor, glorify, and exalt your name. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Uh, many of you know that uh, I didn't come to faith till later in life. I was 28 years old, my wife and I, and uh, before that we were pagans. And, uh, and now I'm a lapsed atheist, but uh, uh, we are so thankful and blessed by what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And once in a while we... Uh, just laugh to think of where we're at, because if you knew us before, this is such an unlikely place for Don and I to be as a pastor and his wife in a local church, and it really speaks of God's grace and, I think, of his humor, <laughs> personally. Uh, but when you're a pastor, I have found over uh, almost uh, 30 years uh, in this is that you never know what's coming Next, uh, your phone may ring and the whole world changes. Uh, you get a knock at your office door and it may be a total surprise to you. Uh, there's unexpected blessings, obviously, and unexpected challenges. And 
I think of the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a great 19th century evangelist and teacher, pastor in uh, London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He had a great impact upon uh, the Great Britain and around the world, really, and continues to do so through his writings. But in his book, Lectures to My Students, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a class of students who were learning how to be ministers, preachers, pastors. And uh, he told this to many of these young men. He said, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. (laughs) If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. And uh, he was trying to impress upon people that uh, there are great challenges in ministry. Uh, David Jeremiah, some of you may know of him. He's a Dallas Seminary graduate and ministers in Southern California. You hear him on the radio, good communicator. But he writes this about the pastorate. He says, years ago when I was pastoring in the Midwest, a woman walked into my office with a request I will never forget. She walked up to my desk where I was working and handed me her Bible. And she said, I want you to take this. She said it with a sigh. Why, I asked her, what for? She said, I'm turning it in. I'm quitting. (laughs) He said, uh, Jeremiah goes on to say, it was like a policeman turning in his badge and quitting the force. She said, you take this, Pastor. There's no way I can live this life. I'm giving you my Bible back, and I'm not going to do this anymore. And David Jeremiah asked the penetrating question, uh, have you ever felt like that? that the Christian life is just too much. It's more than I can do, more than I can accomplish. I get overwhelmed. I'm tired. I'm discouraged with this Christian life stuff. No matter how hard I try, I never measure up. And he goes on to say, I can understand that response because at times I felt that way. And I think all of us, if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for very long, uh, the Christian life uh, not only is difficult, At times, the demands seem to be incredibly great. It is not just challenging. It's not just difficult. But as uh, Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Seminary, said, the Christian life is impossible. Uh, That may come as a shock to you, but it's impossible in the sense, in the context, that you can't do it in your own strength. And the Apostle Paul, in the book of Galatians, this letter we've been studying, is battling this concept, this false teaching, that there's stuff we can do in our flesh which makes us more acceptable to a righteous and holy God. And basically, if you do it in the flesh, like they say, you will burn out. And there are a good number of Christians, and maybe you know some out there, who have given up. In fact, I remember one discussion with a a man, I, a friendship who I valued and uh, who basically left the faith. And he said, this just doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, Christian history is littered with stories like that. And maybe you know one, maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you look in the mirror and that's the person who's ready to give up on the Christian faith, trying to accomplish something in our own strength which really is impossible without the power of something greater than who and what we are. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in verse 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, if you have your copy of God's Word, will be looking at the paragraph before, but I'm going to give you the answer today to how to live out the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul gives it to us 
in chapter 5, verse 16. If you remember, he's been combating false teachers in the churches in Galatia. And uh, we have modern-day Galatianism, as uh, one uh, commentator said, and the fact that all through history, uh, the church has been impacted and attacked over the issue of salvation is by grace through faith alone. And uh, others have tried to pervert the clear gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by adding works of the flesh, whether it's baptism, whether it's repentance, whether it's living a good life to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby perverting what the gospel is according to God's word in the Bible. In verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Next week, uh, Lord willing, as he gives us our days, we will unpack that next paragraph about what it means to walk in the Spirit. But today, uh, we see that there are things that we need to be involved with about our freedom. It's interesting, in uh, church history, there was a man named Cyprian. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage in the 3rd century, And he had a friend named Donatus, and he wrote a letter to Donatus, which we still have copies of. And uh, Cyprian wrote these words. He said, it is an incredibly bad world. Does that sound very contemporary? (laughs) You know, whether the 3rd century or the 21st century, we live in an incredibly bad world. But Cyprian went on to say, but I have discovered in the midst of it all a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their own souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. Legalism appeals to our flesh, and yet even the early Christians in in Cyprian's time understood what it meant to have peace in the midst of adversity and great turmoil in their world. Uh, I've heard uh, church historians say that the 20 and 21st century resemble very closely the 1st through the 3rd century in the Roman Empire. Very similar in some respects, and yet we have great freedom as Christians to practice our faith at this time. And the Apostle Paul is battling this fleshly-oriented religion, if you will, that if we just apply the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, is which the, what the False teachers from Jerusalem were trying to penetrate the churches of Galatia over on Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And uh, it's with us here today. And remember Warren Wiersbe's words where he said, Legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. The Bible calls us to spiritual standards. It means uh, Legalism means worshiping those standards and thinking we are spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. The Pharisees had high standards, and yet they crucified Jesus Christ, unquote. And so Galatians forcefully answers the question, are we saved by believing or are we saved by achieving? And the Bible teaches us it's by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have salvation. These Galatian churches had fallen under the spell of the false teachers and were following the erroneous idea that salvation is faith plus works. It was a doctrinal compromise. And the Apostle Paul approached the issue as a scholar, as an exhorter, as a pastor, as one who is focused so strongly on the truth. In chapter 3, 
He is explaining the gospel of grace. In chapter 4, he illustrates it's out of the Old Testament. In chapter 5 here, he is applying this doctrine of the gospel of grace. And so he comes to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, there are at least fourteen or eight references to the Holy Spirit. There are 14 references in this little letter of Galatians to the Holy Spirit. And the legalists thought they had the answer to the problem of man's sin in laws and threats. But Paul explained that no amount of legislation can change one's basic sinful nature. All of us are born as sinners. It's called total depravity. No one seeks after God. No one does. We need a different power, a power within, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. So basically, what God the Father had planned for you, God the Son purchased for you on the cross, and God the Spirit personalizes it for you and applies it to your life as we yield to him. So in verses 13 through 14, the passage that Bill read for us, a very short paragraph, but very key in understanding this uh, application of the gospel of grace. First of all, he clarifies our liberty in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, for you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, brethren, and that's a generic uh, gender-free statement. It's not only males, but females. And there's this idea that it's not us who sought the freedom. It's Jesus Christ who called us to that freedom. In verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, notice this bookend. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He begins this chapter warning them about the dangers of following uh, salvation by faith plus fleshly works. And here he's talking about in chapter 5, verse 13, that we were called to freedom, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity through for the flesh. So these two extremes, one is legalism, the other one is license. We don't want to go in either ditch, but there is the way of the Bible, what God is teaching us, and that's the way of liberty or freedom. Uh, free from. Uh, so some have misinterpreted that as freedom from moral restraints, and that's licentiousness on one hand. And therefore, the legalist responds, we need more rules to keep everybody in line. But we have the fact of our liberty. We are free from the overwhelming power of sin and Satan. We are free to obey the Savior's words, to follow his model. We are free from eternal punishment and condemnation. We are free to live without guilt, fear, and an accusing conscience. John R. W. Stott defines Christian freedom as the freedom of the consciousness when we recognize we are no longer under the condemnation of our sin that Jesus Christ paid it all. We are also free to come boldly into the presence of God in prayer. We can enter his throne room anytime. We don't need a human priest to intercede for us because Jesus Christ is our intercessor and our guide. The Holy Spirit gives words and wings to our prayers to to him. And so we are called the liberty. I remember uh, when we pastored in the upper Midwest, uh, just near Lake Michigan, Uh, There was a family that came, a a mother and her children who came very faithfully to church and uh, worshiped with us, and she was a believer, but her husband was not. And Fred was a big, tall guy, cowboy guy, worked down in Milwaukee. He was rough and tumble. He had a rough background where he grew up. His grandmother had raised him, and you could just see it on his face. He'd come pick them up from church, 
And he was always angry, just always an angry guy. And I would try to engage him in conversation just to get to know him, and he always had some kind of a smart remark or a sarcastic response to any questions. Well, lo and behold, Fred got saved, to make a long story short. He came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, and it changed his life. It was an amazing transformation. Later, uh, we were talking about that transformation, and he said, you know, before Jesus Christ opened my eyes to the gospel, I just didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. He was a slave to sin. And that's the bondage the Apostle Paul is talking about. The extent of our liberty is to every believer, no exceptions. Each believer has an equal amount of freedom, freedom of our conscience to know, uh, consciousness to know that Christ paid it all. The second part of verse 13, not only are we called to liberty, we are cautioned about licentiousness or lawlessness. Look at verse 13 again. For you're called... <clears throat> For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. It's not the freedom to indulge our flesh. Remember, our flesh, and that's representative of our sin nature, our fallen nature, wants what it wants when it wants it, okay? There's that ongoing difficulty. The word opportunity there, it's, uh, it's a military term, and it means it's a base of operations, like to launch a military campaign. It's a place from which an offensive is launched. Do not use your liberty as a base of operation for launching fleshly indulgences, calling it freedom in Christ, so as to gain relief from guilt. And he's warning us there that we are cautioned about lawlessness. Uh, back a long time ago, there was an old hymn. I remember they sang in the Baptist church in Montana uh, when I would be there. And it was, uh, will there be any stars, any stars in my crown? And it was talking about basically the rewards we receive in heaven. Uh, at that time, when I was in high school, I ran around with a guy who claimed to be a Christian. I wasn't. Uh, I just would show up to church with my parents sometimes. But uh, this guy's uh, comment to me one time was, uh, he had all sorts of liberty. He could do whatever he wanted, which he did. And he said, I won't have any stars in my crown, but at least I'll be in heaven. And that was a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. That was a misapplication. Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And Christian liberty, the implications is uh, some practical questions regarding each one of us in our Christian life is, am I free to do as I please? Well, we don't want anarchy in our lives. We enjoy freedom in this country, but we don't have anarchy because there are still things we do and we follow. Am I free to let everything go wherever I want regardless? No. Am I free to, to, to if I please, to run wild and then be forgiven? And uh, that's the argument there that uh, grace-based churches will just allow people to run wild. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, as a response where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died in sin still live in it? And that is the key is to recognize that because of Jesus Christ, we have died in sin. We are new beings. We are no longer who we used to be. The questions do not reflect freedom but anarchy if we answer those questions in a positive way. Doctrine of liberty needs to be protected from uh, irresponsible abuse in our lives. Uh, you know, and, and each one of us has a challenge of, chal of looking at our own motives and discerning our own motives. Uh, 
Not only are we called to liberty, cautioned about license, but we are commanded to serve. The results of liberty, the end of verse 13, it says, but through love, serve one another. That's the love motive. And that's what changes us. It's a constant and voluntary enslaving of ourselves to one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We North Americans are very independent, very libertine, if you will. And yet there's an example of what the church is. And we are called as believers to be the church. We are the church, this loving community. Remember Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 2, it says they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while, they praised God and enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. And here's the result. And each day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. And so a clarification on our liberty is found there in verse 13. In verses 14 and 15, there are constraints on liberty. There are limitations. Look at verse 14. And we are reminded of the law law of love that reigns. In verse 14, it tells us, For the whole law is fulfilled in the one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A quote out of Leviticus 19.18. We were reminded the law of love reigns. That's the summary of... Of all the Mosaic law is the law of love, and it's a self-sacrificial kind of love. And he tells us that we are warned, don't live like wild beasts in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And what a vivid picture. And what Paul is saying is, don't be a Christian cannibal. Uh, if we were to take a trip and go over I-80, I-80 from Reno to Sacramento, and we would go over the infamous Donner Pass, and if you remember why that pass is named that way, it's because the Donner Party got trapped there in the winter. They were snowbound in the Sierra Nevadas, and uh, they resorted to cannibalism to survive, and it was a freak solution for some of their survival. And that's the picture here. Don't bite and devour one another. By the way, I was reading about the Donner Party, and they've done studies of those who survived. And typically, they were females with a little more weight to them. So they, they made it through the winter. So if you were struggling with some weight issues, just remember the Donner Party, and, you know, you would be the one to survive. I just want to encourage you in that. But the Apostle Paul says, don't live like wild beasts, uh, you know, Ephesians 4, 3 tells us to always keep ourselves united in the Holy Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. We don't want mutual destruction, slander, and criticism. That tears apart every church anytime. And uh, I think all of us have seen churches or been a part of churches of that manner. They ignore this passage. So constraints on our liberty. And the constraining force is the love of God towards one another. And then calculating our liberty or balancing it, when you think about this passage as conclusion, uh, we have to ask some questions. And basically the answers, the long answer is found in Romans chapter 14, where the Apostle Paul expands upon this. But one of the things he talks about is, if my liberty that I have in Christ will harm another brother or sister, I yield to what God would have that I would not harm them. Galatians, or Romans 14, 1 through 3. Or when my liberty, secondly, would hinder God's work, I yield, Romans 14, 16 through 20. If my liberty would hinder God's work, I yield. 
Thirdly, if my liberty creates unrest in my own conscience, I yield, Romans 14, 21 through 23. Each of us has convictions or should have convictions, and for the believer, some of those convictions can be based upon God's word, and convictions are good things, but they are individual things. And I've always said that convictions are good until you try to force your convictions on other people. Uh, when the Bible does not do that. And so be careful about that. When my liberty creates unrest in my own conscience, I yield. We are called to liberty, not legalism or license. We are called by the law of love and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who was a uh, uh, commentator from years ago, wrote this on our sanctification, on growing in Christ together. He writes these words in the, the, the... His language is a little archaic, but I think you'll get the idea. We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of Christian, genuine Christian holiness. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would? Referring to Romans chapter 7. Are we conscious of the two principles within us contending for the master? Do we feel anything of the war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign, Ryle says. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. J.C. Ryle, unquote. In a summation of this, there's three ways to express our liberty. The first one is self-control. We are called to self-control. Secondly, loving service for our neighbor. And our neighbor may be anybody that comes across our path. And third, obedience to God's will. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 1, reminds us that let, let us stop going over the basics of Christianity again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start all over again with the importance of turning away from evil deeds and placing our faith in God, encouraging us to continue on in the faith. As the men come to help serve the Lord's table, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage out of the letter of Galatians this morning. Though brief, it has much there for us to pay attention to, to think about, and to allow you to apply to our lives. And Lord, may we be a people who are people of the word, people that love one another, and are attuned to what your will is for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.